Imagine a world you're thrilled to be living in. Imagine telling your children and your grandchildren that in this time and in this place, we came together. Imagine change unconstrained by our individual understandings of what's possible. This is all of us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. I'm Greg Grinberg. Today, we'll be talking about what we want to see at the state level over the next two years and how we in Connecticut can use our advantages and our privilege to become a model for others to follow. And my guest is literally all of us. Please call in or text your ideas and comments at 203-872-7356. This episode of All of Us is a precursor to the fourth What Now community conversation happening this Thursday, January 12th at 6.30 p.m. at Common Ground. Twelve members of the state legislature will be in attendance. And they'll be coming to participate in this open dialogue and policy forum on any and all state issues. Bring your ideas, bring your questions, and bring your vision. This event is a policy forum co-organized by Connecticut Young Democrats, Greater New Haven Young Democrats, and Action Together New Haven, formerly Pantsuit Nation, and generously hosted by Common Ground. Everyone is welcome to attend, regardless of whether you've uh, attended previous conversations before and where you fall on the political spectrum. This episode is a precursor to an event we're going to be having on Thursday. It is a policy forum where we have 12, state le- um, 12 members of the state legislature coming to participate in an open dialogue and policy forum on any and all state issues. So bring your ideas, bring your questions, bring your vision. This event is... Uh, co-organized by Connecticut Young Democrats, Greater New Haven Young Democrats, Action Together New Haven, formerly Pantsuit Nation, and generously hosted by Common Ground. Everyone is welcome to attend, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, or whether you've attended any of our previous community conversations. That's going to be held this Thursday, January 12th, at 6.30 p.m., again at Common Ground. So I'd like to begin... This show today, uh, first of all, by again inviting you to call in with uh, with questions, with ideas for what you want to see happen at the state level over the next two years, Uh, and by taking a step back and asking, what is government for? And to me, it starts with a basic realization that everyone, every single person, is a human being of infinite, inherent, immutable value and potential that our default state as human beings is to be in community with one another. It is to bring our gifts generously to our communities. And that the highest role of any institution in any civilization is to increasingly recognize that value and create the circumstances in which that potential can flourish. Because freedom, after all, isn't binary. Someone who has the free time and cash in a checking account to get on a plane has infinitely more freedom than someone who barely has enough pocket change to take the bus, citizens of a free country or not. So freedom isn't a binary thing, it's a moving target. And Americans like to talk about freedom as if it were a uniquely American value. We speak of this country as the home of the free. The document that declared our existence as an independent nation spoke of certain inalienable rights, among them liberty. Yet we've certainly found ways to alienate them. We've built a society that gives most people freedom, but the minimum amount. And food and shelter and access to communication and even clean air and clean water 
are some of the mechanisms, the very real mechanisms by which our freedom on a daily basis in terms of our lived experience can be limited. And we all need these things to survive and flourish. And by monetizing them um, and by making them the, 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 the product of privilege rather than a guarantee, uh, we've, we've certainly found ways to, um, to guarantee that most people will spend most of their waking hours working and saving just to have these things, and often not particularly great versions of these things, just the minimum amount to get by for right now. And worse, we've confused succeeding in this system we've built with moral virtue. We speak of industriousness and laziness as if those traits were str somehow strong predictors of financial success, even though we know that they're not. Uh, so, so to me, when we say that like something like money grows on trees as if that's a good thing, we're, we're almost celebrating the fact that we've built a system that is at best a zero-sum game. And when you start to take into account things like climate change and God knows, you know, all of the other issues that we're dealing with, we, we kind of realize that it's not really a zero-sum game, it's a negative-sum game. If we, if we continue on this path, we're all going to lose. So you know, I'm not suggesting uh, in saying all of this that, that we should, uh, you know, somehow... Be jealous of our prehistoric relatives, you know, that, that didn't have government, that didn't have civilization. Uh, I'm not saying that they have it better than we do. I am saying, though, that in some ways they had it better. And when we find something that resonates with us in rhetoric that glorifies the good old days, it could be that we're yearning for something in the memory of our collective unconscious, not something that we at some, had at some point in our history, but at some point in our prehistory. And so... To, to, to bring it home, I think that any civilization should be judged by its ability to provide ever more freedom to everyone, not just to some people at the expense of others, not just the minimum amount, and certainly not less freedom than we had before civilization itself existed. And so to me, above all, that is the role of government, ever increasing freedom to everyone and recognizing opportunities to... Uh, to to bring out the gifts that we all have to offer to our communities, to create the conditions in which we can all flourish together. We give up some freedom uh, as part of that bargain, but hopefully in the net, we, uh, we, we gain significantly. So seeing through this lens, then, I think certain things start to become obvious. You know, things like mass incarceration become, it, it becomes not just morally reprehensible and, 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 and repulsive in our gut, but it becomes so clear, the dysfunction behind it becomes so clear, the way, that the, the fact that we're, that we're wounding ourselves when we, when we destroy other people, when we destroy other people's lives by depriving them of freedom, and, you know, everything from, de from depriving them of access to information to depriving them access to good food, we deprive ourselves of the gifts that they can bring to our communities. So, you know, the intentionally racist war on drugs, which we carry on here at the state level, um, is a legacy that we've been given by previous generations, and it's something that we now have the ability to do something about. And I hope that this is the kind of thing that we discuss on Thursday. I hope it's the kind of thing that we continue discussing over the next few years in the legislature. And... What I think is also interesting about 
seeing it through this lens is that there's you know that there are other things that are that are sort of more subtle that also become obviously problematic i mean when we when we publish mugshots and hand them to the media to make the six o'clock news broadcast you know that much easier for them to put together what are we really doing when we when we when we sort of when, when the news becomes all about some person who who may or may not have actually done something that, that you know they really shouldn't have done you know and we we publish these mugshots um that are certainly not race neutral let's put it that way what are we perpetuating what are we what are we what are we cultivating in our collective consciousness when we see pictures of people who look a certain way uh, and we keep on saying, hey, these are the bad people. These are the people who this guy, this guy stole something. This guy assaulted someone and so on and so forth. I think we're starting to uh, we're starting to sort of poison. Um, we're poisoning the well, so to speak, um, of our collective uh, collective consciousness and collective decision making when uh, when we do that. And we and we sort of have to step back and ask ourselves, why? Why are we why are we complicit? Why are we actually why are we actually more than complicit? Why are we um, facilitating and promoting the continuation of racial prejudices, economic prejudices and so on? And, and why are we sort of dwelling on all of the stuff that is bad when the vast majority of things that people in our communities are doing on a daily basis are good? Why are we making it so easy for 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 news organizations who who have an, an obligation, a contractual obligation to cover the news in exchange for free use of airwaves, to uh, to to cover news and sp- with that particular spin on it. So these are just two examples that kind of sort of jump out at me when I sort of when I kind of adopt this mindset that 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 all of us are human beings of infinite value and. That our job as fellow human beings is to is to bring out the gifts that we have to offer from ourselves and also to create the conditions uh, for our friends and our families and everyone to bring out their gifts. There are, these things become obvious. So I'd like to invite everyone, not just to this this forum on Thursday night, um, but to just try that mindset on for a second and see what pops out. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from. Uh, for, you know, from everyone, what their vision of the future is and what they want to see over the next two years. Um, so with that, I do want to open up the phone lines. Our phone number here um, is, uh, pulling it up right now, I can never quite remember it, is 203-872-7356. That's 203-872-7356. You can call in, you can text in. I do have a text here that I would like to read. Just pulling it up. All right, this is from Melissa in New Haven, uh, and it's a long one. So this is this is a comment from um, from Melissa in New Haven. Last session, the legislature and Governor Malloy were working on a criminal justice reform bill, coined Second Chance 2.0, that seemed to have bipartisan support. The legislation would have eliminated bail for most minor crimes and eventually placed many defendants charged with other than major felonies under the jurisdiction of juvenile courts until age 21. My understanding is that these reforms would have helped reduce Connecticut's prison population and reduced the cost associated with our criminal justice system. Our legislature needs to take up this reform proposal again this session and find a way to get it passed. 
uh, again, this is a comment from uh, from Melissa in New Haven. The second issue that is particularly important to me is the issue of transgender and gender nonconforming youth in our school system. We are fortunate in Connecticut that gender identity has been added to our non-discrimination law. However, I know from experience that enforcement of this law to protect the rights of transgender and gender nonconforming children in our schools is often not adequately enforced on the ground. Given what I expect will be a more hostile environment for transgender and gender nonconforming people at the federal level, as well as many other states in the union, it is extremely important that Connecticut do everything it can to protect our transgender and gender nonconforming population, especially our youth. I'm not suggesting that this will require new legislation, but it will require strong policies and regulations and diligent enforcement of our existing non-discrimination law by the CHRO and our state Department of Education. My hope is that by is that our representatives will be paying attention to this issue to ensure that laws that they've passed are being implemented in a way that ac- accomplishes the desired result, protection of our transgender and gender nonconforming population from discriminatory acts, bullying, harassment, and other actions that will impede their ability to lead productive lives with dignity. And again, that is a comment from Melissa in New Haven. Again, the phone lines are open here. Call or text. Uh, 203-872-7356. Again, that's 203-872-7356. This show, uh, this episode of All of Us, is a precursor to a community conversation that we will be having on Thursday evening. Again, that's Thursday, January 12th, this Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Common Ground. And again, it is organized by What Now New Haven and co-organized by Connecticut Young Democrats, Greater New Haven Young Democrats, and Action Together New Haven, formerly Pantsuit Nation. Again, the phone lines are open. It's 203-872-7356. So turning to to, to another issue while we're waiting for people to call in, that is really important to me, voting. Um, so voting, I think, is is an issue where we in Connecticut can use our, our economic privilege and the advantages that we have politically to be a model for others to follow. So, you know, reading about the, you know, everything that sort of went wrong in the latest presidential election, it seems clear that 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 other states have much bigger problems than we do when it comes to voting. I mean, in, ter- in terms of in- intentionally intentionally uh, disenfranchising people who do have every legal right to vote by closing polling stations, by closing them early, by making it extremely difficult, you know, by choosing inconveniently located polling stations, um, you know, by having by having regulations that that are um, user unfriendly and intentionally so in terms of um, in terms of uh, you know, regulating, you know, when you register to vote and then when you can vote and so on. So I think that we're we're fairly progressive on this in Connecticut, but there certainly are things that we can do to dramatically take the leadership position on this issue. And one of them is one of the things that we can do is online voting, because as we know, it is much easier for some people to get to their polling places than others here, even in Connecticut. And certain polling places are much more user friendly than others. We had people waiting for many hours here in New Haven in the last cycle to vote, whereas we know that in other towns, there is practically no way to you practically walk in and vote. So online voting 
would certainly and, and certainly not online voting to the exclusion of polling place voting, but in addition to polling place voting would make it much easier for people who have to work on Election Day to vote. It would also make it easier for people who don't have easy access to transportation to vote. And it is something that as a software engineer, I personally believe is readily achievable. It's not something that, you know, where we have to um you know, really worry that, uh, you know, that the, that the technology isn't there because the technology, frankly, is there. Uh, the It's the same technology that we use every day when we buy something online, when we encrypt our credit card numbers. That same cryptographic technology can give us cryptographic certainty that our votes were counted accurately. And I think that that's actually a step up in terms of security and the, and the integrity of the vote. I think that's a step up from where we are today, because even though we have a paper trail, we don't really know for sure that ballots aren't lost. Um, we also, but more importantly than, than, than that, um, far more importantly than that, um, the, the process of counting paper ballots is extremely expensive. Um, and online voting with, uh, it's with the cryptographic certainty that it would offer that your vote was counted accurately. In other words, there are systems that can be built that would prove to you that your vote was counted accurately. Um, in such a way that that it that still no one else can know how you voted, but you would know for sure that your vote was counted accurately. Um, these these systems exist, and they're frankly not that difficult to build. And we would know instantly if there was tampering or or some sort of interference in um, in an election. Whereas now, counting all of those paper ballots is a is a very expensive um, process that takes that takes frankly way too long because you know it takes longer than the time between election day and um, when we need to know who the winner is. Um, so that's that's one aspect of voting that I think is um, that, that, you know, that, that I think where we can take a, a decided leadership role. I mean, we can do, you know, we can do same day registration at polling places. I mean, and I, I know and I know that that's, you know, that that's been done here. I mean, we can do all sorts of uh, all sorts of good things. Um, but I think online voting is the most dramatic thing that we can do um, and the most visible thing that we can do to stand up um in opposition to to uh, to vote to to manipulating uh, the vote in in other states um, by systematically disenfranchising certain voters, um, the other thing is ranked choice voting. I think that with ranked choice voting, we can we can take a um, not quite a leadership role in that you know Maine has now beaten us to this punch, um, but I think we can we can follow suit. And allow ranked choice voting in our in our state elections and in our elections to elect uh, the electors for president, and we would be, uh, I think, uh, a lot better off in terms of what that would do to to campaigns. I think it would lead to campaigns that are much less negative. Um, a multi-way campaign is fundamentally different from a two-way campaign in that it's it's no longer good enough to say vote against that guy uh, and thus therefore support me you have to have you have to stand for something you can't just be running in opposition to to the other guy um so i think ranked choice voting would lead um not just to different outcomes electorally but it would lead to different campaigns and a different exchange of ideas so i do have a text here um from a listener um for, uh, for what now at the state level let's ensure that the continuation of access health connecticut um or let, let's ensure the continuation of Access Health Connecticut or set up a system with other Northeast states. So if I take this comment um, correctly, what, it, what, there, what is being suggested is let's, let's essentially maintain the, the effect of the Affordable Care Act, um, either working alone as a state or in partnership with, with other states. 
in the Northeast. Uh, so that is a that is an ideal uh, topic to bring to the community conversation on Thursday. Um, I certainly invite the listener who suggested that, as I invite everyone, um, regardless again of where you put where you put yourself on the political spectrum and whether or not you've been to previous community conversations, to you know please come to this conversation again Thursday this Thursday, January twelfth, uh, at Common Ground at six thirty p.m. Again, the phone lines are open. The number is 203-872-7356. And that's 203-872-7356. So another issue that we've um that that we've been um that we that I've been talking about with uh with the co-organizers of this um of this forum uh, are, is it, it's sort of two related issues, tolls and the gas tax. Uh, and I'd like to uh, just take this liberty to expound on my own position on this now that uh, in, in, between, uh, in between calls and comments from, from listeners. To me, the, um, to me, tolls, you know, again, through this lens of, you know, if government's job is to sort of maximize freedom and um, sort of promote the general user-friendliness that people experience um, in the course of life and sort of make it easier for people to contribute the gifts that they have to their communities, um, however broadly we define community, to me, toll sort of, it stands in dramatic opposition to that. It's kind of like this, it's sort of, you know, among, it's among the most user-unfriendly things you can picture, you know. It's these toll plazas where you have all this traffic backed up, you have people, you know, you have, you have cars burning gasoline even though they're not moving, um, you know, of course, releasing carbon into the atmosphere and they're just, you know, it's, it's sort of this waste. It's, it's, an, it's an obvious sort of drain on the net utility when we have, you know, we have far more efficient ways of, of taxation. I mean, it is a form of taxation, ultimately. Um, and, you know, I think one of the biggest arguments for tolls is that, you know, this is sort of argument that like out-of-state residents get this kind of free pass when they, uh, you know, when they use our roads and they... Uh, you know that you know they they but they don't pay for the wear and tear that they cause. You know when someone driving from New York to Massachusetts happens to pass through Connecticut but doesn't stop and spend any money and so on. And you know I I sort of of course understand that that argument. I understand that on, in some level on some level that is unfair. Um, and yet it seems to me that uh, the toll booths are kind of more unfair to everyone because we are wasting we're wasting everyone's time. We're, uh, you know, and, and we're collecting money in a very inefficient way. So to me, this is kind of one of those issues where, again, sort of stepping back and asking what is the role of government, there seems to, it seems like there has to be a smarter way than, um, than collecting revenue in, in such an inefficient way that, that, that with so many attendant external costs. So on the other hand, the gas tax is a really interesting um, way for us to 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 impose a carbon tax at the state level and we know that if we increase the carbon if we increase the gas tax sufficiently it it will lead to changes in 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 the way that we do things it will it will incentivize us to carpool it, you know to use our bicycles when we can and of course this has to be done thoughtfully it has to be it ha- we have to recognize that done done poorly this could be uh, an increased gas tax could be enormously regressive it could hit uh people with long commutes um you know, really hard, and we need to figure out how to manage those nuances. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to 
to, to not even necessarily impose a carbon tax on, uh, you know, you know, by virtue of, of of the gas tax, but at least just to eliminate what really is in effect a subsidy, because it turns out that we spend about twice as much uh, on road construction and maintenance as we take in from all revenue sources that have anything to do with roads. So if you add up the, what we take in, you know, from the gas tax today. And you add in, uh, you know, the DMV fees and, uh, you know, and, and even property taxes on motor vehicles, it doesn't come close to the amount of money that we spend maintaining roads. So in a way, what we're doing right now is actually subsidizing the use of gasoline and subsidizing the emission of carbon into the atmosphere. And I think that it's pretty clear um, that, you know, because the planet and the health of the ecosystems that support our civilization is is not just the most important issue in, in some ways it really is the issue um it, it seems like it seems like subsidizing activities that that lead to to damaging those ecosystems and and damaging them so quickly that we can't even necessarily adapt quickly enough to the changing the, the 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 resulting changes in the climate it seems like that's uh you know that's an obvious thing that we that we should fix again getting you know getting the nuances right Again, the lines are open. It's 203-872-7356. 203-872-7356. And this is All of Us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. This is an episode of All of Us that is a precursor to a community conversation on Thursday evening, this Thursday, January 12th at 6.30 p.m. at Common Ground. Now we have some people calling in and some people who would like to uh, to join the conversation actually live in the studio. So uh, to start with live, we've we've got Harry uh, our, uh, at the uh, at the soundboard who wanted to say a couple of things. Well, I had a question on the voting. Sure. And you said online voting. Now, we just saw there's a there's a lot of accusations of Putin hacking the election. Right. Wouldn't online voting be more hackable? No, I'm so glad you. I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, it, in, in my opinion, no. And I know that this is this is a topic of legitimate debate among computer scientists and software engineers. As as a software engineer, my per, my view, my individual view on this is that um, we have we have less to be concerned about with online voting than we do with electronic voting machines at polling places that don't maintain a paper trail. Um, in, in my mind, that's the worst of all possible worlds because there's really no way to to uh, to verify um, that that an electronic voting machine um, that you that you go to at a polling place and use um, that doesn't give you any kind of receipt or anything like that and doesn't maintain any kind of um, of paper copy that 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 the voter can actually see that they uh, that 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 um, that reflects how they actually voted. Um, to me, that's the that's the most that's the worst possible situation. Does that make sense? It does, but nothing's unhackable, right? That it's true. You know, there it, there's there. You know, theoretically, there can be there can be a bug in any system. There can, in other words, there's always human error. You can always make a mistake in the implementation of building any system. This much is true. Um, at the same time, if you assume that if you assume that there's enough that there are enough eyes on uh on any given software project there there are enough people looking at the code 
the the probability of that kind of error does go down. It doesn't go to it, it doesn't it, it never actually reaches zero, but it approaches zero. And then, meanwhile, the technology that we rely on um, to, um, if, for example, to encrypt our credit card numbers, you know, as, as we send them over the Internet, that kind of technology is, is, is mathematically, provably secure. In other words, there's, there's mathematical proof that, that, those, that those technologies are secure, you know, up to the possibility of someone figuring out you know, some way to factor prime numbers, you know, factor products of large prime numbers very quickly. I mean, that's that's ultimately ultimately that's how encryption works. It it relies on the fact that um, some computations uh, are very easy to do in one direction, but really hard to do in the other. So, and the example is, um, is is factoring prime numbers. That's actually the that's the basis of cryptography um, that's used to send credit card and, and other sensitive data over the internet it's actually it's very easy to multiply two big numbers together and figure out what the product of those two numbers are when you multiply them but to take a large a very large number um and um and figure out what its factors are what its prime factors are that that can that can take years even on the fastest computers and that's what we're taking advantage of with cryptography. We're taking advantage of the fact that it's really easy to do that, um, to, to do the multiplication, but very hard to do the factorization. That it's, it's, it, we, we say it's computationally infeasible to do it, meaning that even if you were to buy you know, the, you know, a bunch of the world's fastest computers and network them all together in some extremely clever way, it would still take years to, to decrypt the encrypted message if you didn't have the, the private key. Um, so that's... in. In sort of so many words, that's that's what we're relying on when we when when I talk about online voting being secure. I'm saying that as as safe as much as you rely on being able to buy something online and you rely on your credit card information not getting stolen, it's it's as reliable to uh, to vote online. And I would argue even a little bit more so because, you know, you, you hear about stories where like, you know, Home Depot was hacked or whatever, or, you know, any big box retailer, I mean, you know, not to pick on Home Depot specifically, but, you know, you hear, you hear that these, that, that companies, you know, get, get hacked and sometimes customer information is stolen and occasionally credit card information is stolen. Um, what, what's happening there, the sort of the analogous sort of the analogy to that in the case of voting is someone figuring out some way to, after the fact, um, alter the voting record. But there are some really low-tech ways to, to defeat that. Um, if, for example, we can, we could, we can publish um, a, the running vote. Um, in other words, we can publish a continuous stream of all the votes cast to a large number of news organizations. So, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of these newspapers would have a copy of the vote as the votes are coming in. So then if someone were to go back and try to manipulate it, we would, you know, they, they would differ from the result from the from the votes that were sent to the news organizations, for example. And there and there are there are much more sophisticated cryptographic ways of ensuring the integrity of the vote. I mean, there are blockchain technologies and so on. So I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm answering the question in a way that's making you feel any better about it, Harry. But you're answering this, my question. The only problem I have is right now we have a you know a big controversy about um, registering without an ID or voting without identification. How would we register to to online vote without actually proving 
we are who we are. Our identity, for sure. I mean, and I think that's in, in some ways the hardest problem. It, it's the, the hardest problem isn't actually keeping um, the integrity of the vote. It's not necessarily even proving. I mean, it, it's very easy to build a system. And you can actually see a demo of this that I built uh, personally at uh, rankedchoicevote.com. That's, uh, that's R-A-N-K-E-D choicevote.com. And you can see how this works. Um, it's also a nice demonstration of how... Um, how ranked choice voting works, if I do say so myself. But the, um, uh, but I think I think the I think the the practical question that you're bringing up is 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 the most difficult piece of it, which is how do we actually authenticate? In other words, how do we how do we know that the person who's voting is who they say they are and that they are allowed to vote? I know personally, I think everybody should be allowed to vote. I think you know one person, one vote. I mean, you know, maybe you know maybe not if you're seven, you know, but you know, I think that the, I, I I think that. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know too many people who are, um, you know, have sort of a more extreme position on that than I personally do. But but regardless of that, I mean, you can you can set up any kind of system that you want um, in terms of, you know, deciding who gets to vote. And it's a matter then of of sending a credential to that person. So we could do it by mail if we wanted to. We could we could we could mail every registered voter a unique identifier number. And we could have a system of, of, of redress if your identifier number doesn't get sent to you, if it gets if it gets stolen from you. So it's essentially a one time use password that you would that you would type in and, that, you know, it sort of would identify. And, and, you know, absentee ballots kind of work the same way. It's there. There are two envelopes and the outer envelope identifies you as the voter and then the inner envelope, um, you know, it, it contains your vote. So there's this. There's 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 a level of trust there. In other words, when you submit an absentee ballot, someone could fig- someone could open up both envelopes and figure out and and just read what your vote is, and they would know how you voted. So the 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 anonymity of the vote, I think, is, um, I think that's a I think that's a uh, you know, it, it, treating this as an engineering project that has system requirements and um, you know, and desired features. The the system requirement of the anonymity of the vote, I think, is best achieved. Um, socially rather than technologically, if that makes sense. You know, it's just, it's socially unacceptable for someone in a polling place to open up your absentee ballot and then open up the in, the inner envelope and see how you voted and then go tell everyone how you voted, right? Like, no, nobody would do that because it's so socially unacceptable to do that. In the same way, we would be trusting um, the the maintainers of the system not to build in any kind of backdoor that would, that would record... Um, how you as an individual voted if that makes well, that, sense that's harder than showing your id you know at the polling booth you mean receiving this receiving this piece of mail and well then... right and trusting somebody to use the code you'll have other people you have people lo- cloning everybody's phone in order to vote for them right i mean and that's that's the um that's the danger i mean like someone i mean we we can we can you know we can come up with a, a system of, of of generating codes that would um be l- let's say again computationally infeasible to um to spoof um but at the same time um you know there's there there are there are other ways of of stealing a vote you can simply someone could simply steal your mail for example so it's not that it's it's not that it's foolproof it's just that i think that if you if you think about the the number of times that would happen the number of people who would actually go to that trouble of stealing somebody else's um, you know, unique identifier number to, to cast a vote, knowing that they're going to be caught if they do that. You know that this, there is there is really no that kind of anonymity on the internet is 
um, let's say, not available to most people. That it's it's very difficult to be anonymous to that degree on the internet. Um, the, you know, no, no, it just seems like that's a really small number. Um, and so it kind of reminds me of the of this sort of general phenomenon overall, where you know you have you have talking heads on TV talking about all this voter fraud and all these people who are voting multiple times or whatever, all these people who are voting who who shouldn't be voting, who aren't legally allowed to vote. Yeah, I mean, it it happens. It's not that it never happens. It's just that it happens so much more infrequently than someone who is allowed to vote not getting to vote because they couldn't get to the polling place, because the polling place closed, because the line at the polling place was so long that they simply couldn't afford that much time in their day to, um, you know, to, you know, to cast the vote. Um, you know, the people who were denied, um, the right to vote, um, at the polling place illegally. This, this happens so much, so much more frequently than someone who isn't allowed to vote or shouldn't be allowed to vote getting to vote. I mean, and, and I think the, and, and I think, you know, to sort of put a, the, the final point on it, the, one of those two things is enough to affect the election outcome and the other one isn't you know, right the, <laughs> and your your way it would have saved wisconsin and michigan millions of dollars in the recount because it would be instantaneous exactly right? exactly the recount <laughs> is instantaneous exactly yeah. no that's an awesome point yeah, it it actually that that part of it, it does make sense if we could somehow come with a come up with the security, it makes sense. Now, my other question is, um, you said there's not enough polling locations or not enough time. My thing is, how much is enough? I mean, there's some some places have two weeks, a month of early voting. Sure, you, you think there should be like a federal law allowing every state to have two weeks or a month or something like that well i mean legally um it, that that's probably a complicated question and i think that there are people who uh have thought about this a lot more than i have who would be much more qualified to to answer that question i mean i would trust their opinion let's say more than i would trust mine um because there are, there are, there are broader implications i think um in terms of um you know, I, under our current system, right, states are states are allowed to decide how their votes get counted independently of the federal government. So I haven't really thought about it this much, but I could kind of see an argument that um, someone uh, I could sort of see an argument that a state um, there that's sort of a check. That's a check and balance on federal power um, that the states get to decide how votes are um you know, are counted. Now, on the other hand, I mean, there are there are federal laws about voting that that um, that are that are part of civil rights legislation that require states that who have been found to um, have um, illegally denied um, voter rights in the past to have their processes approved by the federal government. So, you know, so so clearly I think this is I think so I think that's a nuanced legal question. But 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 I mean, if, if I were designing the ideal voting system, yes, it would be it would happen over the course of of some period of time, you know, maybe maybe not necessarily months, but at least weeks. And you would be able to change your vote if you changed your mind in the course of that period. And um, you would be able to do it from your computer or your smartphone or by going to a polling place. And, and, and remember now, if, if, you, if you can vote online, if you can use a computer, it means you can use any computer. That means every public library becomes a polling place. Every school becomes a polling place. 
So in, in my mind, I mean, you know, democracy is is sort of synonymous with access to um, to decision makers. It's 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 a there if it's if, if we don't provide um, easy access for everyone to to offer their input, I, I, I don't know that to me is democracy. Yeah. And, and the problem is, is depending on who's in control, they redistrict and they move polling locations away from one location to where it's feasible for another group. You know, so it's, it's never a fair system because each group redistricts every time they're in charge. Exactly. Exactly. And we do have an incoming call here. Hey, go ahead. Yes, hey, good afternoon, Greg, is that you? Hey, Chris. How's it going, everybody? This is my friend Chris, who I grew up with. Hey, good afternoon, New Haven. How's everyone doing? I hope well today. Hey, Greg, I, I was just curious. I uh, was, was wondering if we could uh, shift gears momentarily. I know that uh, your show's got a bit of a political undertone to it, so... I figured I'd uh, I'd go ahead and ask you. Did you happen to see Meryl Streep's uh, soliloquy last night during the Golden Globe Awards? You know, Chris, I, I read about it afterwards. Um, what What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I honestly I thought she had a really nice message in the sense that you know she compared Hollywood to the United States of America, and that. Uh, you know, Hollywood would be a very boring place if all of these people from all walks of life weren't a part of it. And uh, during her speech, she referenced uh, several different actors and actresses in the audience and talked about what countries they came from and what uh, demographic they may have belonged to. So I thought the, the message was really nice. But I think what Meryl Streep is missing is that the United States is not like Hollywood in the sense that most Americans don't get to wear a $25,000 dress and deliver soliloquies during the Golden Globe Awards. Mm. So I, I guess it sort of comes, I mean, no, I mean, I, I think the privilege of, uh, the privilege of Hollywood is undeniable. The privilege of lots of, of, of communities is, is sort of undeniable. I mean, you know, I mean, look, I mean, software engineers, I think, you know, we're kind of as privileged as it gets. I mean, you know, um, I think um, that the question is, what do we do with that privilege, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think that it just struck a nerve with me only because I think that, you know, what Meryl Streep was trying to say and the way that she said it was was really just a, a, a smaller portrayal of how this last election cycle went down. Um, I just think time and time again, you have somebody from Hollywood or the liberal media getting up, trying to give themselves a, a self-serving pat on the back hmm. um, you know, type of speech. And it just doesn't resonate with the rest of this country. It's, it's, it's just hard for the normal person to understand that when these people in Hollywood, I mean, I don't know if you could find a larger demographic of people that live in a bubble than Hollywood, yet they keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I just feel like they're rubbing the rest of our faces in it. Hmm. So I get. so are you kind of basically saying um, nice, good message, um, but bad delivery? Love the sin, hate the sinner. 
Hmm. Huh. That's interesting. I don't quite follow. Could you say more about that? Well, yeah. I mean, so here you have Meryl Streep, right? And she gets up in front of an audience on the national or universal stage, and she, she delivers this message without actually using the word Donald Trump. Very creative, Meryl Streep. I, I don't know if, you could, if somebody could have done that more creatively, hinting at uh, somebody who doesn't let people in or out. We, we understood who she was talking about very clearly. Sure. And of, of course she's going to say something, and all of her colleagues in Hollywood are going to clap their hands and smile and look at the camera and say, oh, you know, we're, we are, we've got a message. We're the ones that know, that know everything, yet they are so far removed from how people actually feel. And I feel like they just keep contributing to their own problem. Um, this last mm. election proved that, that people don't believe the media. People are sick of hearing from Hollywood, and yet they they're just continue to do this. So her message was her message was very positive, um, and she also said something about protecting the rights of journalists, and that that's that's something that we need to concentrate on. Sure. And I I I agree, but really what I liked what I would have liked to have seen Meryl Streep do is get up there and provide some type of answer to the problem. Why protect the journalists? How about we create a better way of delivering the news and making sure that the integrity of the news that we deliver is better. Got it. I would have loved to continue this longer. Uh, unfortunately, we're coming up on three o'clock now, and I'm being told by our station manager that we need to we need to go to the next program. Um, Chris, thanks for calling. And uh, this is all of us on WNHH.